Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tales from the Kentucky Room. So one of my favorite things about working in the Kentucky Room is talking with my colleagues about what gems they've discovered while helping customers with their research. Librarian Wayne Johnson is a literal treasure trove about Lexington history. And if you have any questions about local newspapers or any questions about Lexington history, he's your guy. That's why when he happened to mention the story of Pamela Ferris Brown and her ill-fated hot air balloon flight with her husband in 1970, I knew we had to record it for the podcast. This September, it'll be 50 years since the actress disappeared over the Atlantic in that flight. Her and her husband had been planning the trip for a while, and it did not end well. But I'll just let Wayne tell you the story. Monday evening, September 21st, 1970. Time was around 7 p.m. It was somewhere over the Atlantic Ocean, about 400 miles southeast of Newfoundland. At an altitude of 600 feet and following a hot air balloon with three people on board and attempting to be the first balloon to complete a transatlantic voyage, radioed that they were in a bad storm and that they were going down into the dark, stormy ocean. We are ditching. Request search and rescue were their final words. September 2020 will mark the 50th anniversary of the mystery of this balloon flight attempting to be the first to cross the Atlantic. The balloon, named the Free Life, and its crew were never found. Eternally lost at sea, it seems. One of those on board was a young woman born and raised in Lexington, Kentucky. Pamela Ferris Brown was born in Lexington, Kentucky on August 26, 1942. She was the youngest daughter of John Y. and Dorothy Brown. Pamela grew up in Lexington, attending local schools, and was a 1960 graduate of Lafayette High School. Growing up, she had an interest in drama and acting, and was active in school and community plays. This interest led her to a professional career in the acting field after her college days, first at UK and then Stevens College in Missouri. Moving to New York City in the mid-1960s to pursue a career in acting, Pamela had a recurring role on the daytime soap opera, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. She made appearances on national television shows like The Lawrence Welk Show and The Ed Sullivan Show and also appeared in some national television commercials. Now, during her college years, before leaving for New York, Pamela was also active in pageants. She was selected Miss Lexington in 1961 and represented the city in that year's Miss Kentucky pageant. And naturally, growing up in the horse capital of the world, she had an interest in horses and was reported to be the first female exercise boy rider out at the famed Kingland Racetrack. Now, Pamela Brown was the youngest child in a very prominent Kentucky family. Her father, John Y. Brown Sr., was a famed defense attorney and a longtime member of the Kentucky House of Representatives, including time as majority leader and speaker of the House. He also served one term in the U.S. Congress and was active in pursuing races to be elected for Kentucky governor and U.S. senator, but he was unsuccessful in these races. 
His son, John Y. Brown Jr., Pamela's older brother, was also involved in politics and served as governor of Kentucky from 1979 to 1983. Before becoming governor, he made his mark in business and made the Kentucky Fried Chicken Company the huge success it was after he bought it from Colonel Harlan Sanders. So Pamela Brown came from a family of high achievers. Now, after moving to New York City, she met and married Rod Anderson. The marriage took place in 1967. Rod was a commodities broker in New York. At that time, when the couple hatched a plan for the transatlantic balloon flight, they both wanted to accomplish something that had never been done before, and a fellow broker that worked with uh, Rod Anderson came up with the idea of a transatlantic flight by balloon. It had never been done. Now, once the couple decided on the goal, they began to develop a plan. Now, with financial backing from Pamela's father, total cost of the uh, project turned out to be about $100,000. A lot of it was financed by Pamela Brown's father. Some of it was financed with the Andersons or, or Pamela and, and Rod selling their apartment furniture and other donations. Now, the couple hired a veteran balloon maker by the name of Mark Semwich to build the balloon. At the beginning, the couple did not intend to fly in the balloon themselves. They, the plan was to hire some pilots to fly it, and they hired a veteran balloon pilot to get involved with the project. And at some point, Rod Anderson decided he would be the number two man in the cockpit. Now, at this point, Pamela Brown was not intending to be on the flight. Her, her main interest was developing the plan, getting the balloon ready, and, and so forth. She had no intention, as I understand it, to um, be involved with uh, being on the balloon as it crossed the Atlantic. Now, the balloon was built, and it was, like I said, called the Free Life. The Free Life balloon was a pear-shaped yellow-white-orange balloon, 80 feet high, about seven stories above the 12-foot by four-and-a-quarter-foot gondola. It was 80 foot high and 50 feet wide. The balloon was actually three balloons layered into one balloon. As described in a newspaper article at the time, the craft is a system of three balloons in one and operates on the twin principles of helium and hot air. According to the article, most free air balloons are either one or the other, not both. The special hot air mechanism will allow the craft to maintain its altitude at night when the temperatures drop and the helium contracts, thus losing its lifting power. Now, unfortunately, during the flight, there was a failure of this heating device, and it probably contributed to the free life's inability to stay up in the air on that fateful night in September 1970. Okay, so the balloon was designed to operate on helium during the day when the temperatures were higher, and hot air during the night when it was colder to maintain altitude during the voyage. Propane was carried in large canisters and placed in the gondola for the trip. Now, the Free Life was equipped with navigational and radio systems. The crew realized the possibility of being lost at sea, and they were confident in their radio equipment in case they got lost and if they had to communicate. Now, a volunteer from a transatlantic airline helped design the Free Life's radio equipment, and he said that the system was better than the 747 jumbo jet radio, which he helped design. 
This gave the crew a lot of confidence in the radio system in case they got lost at sea. Now, the system also included two special radios designed to beam an electronic signal for up to two weeks, even if it was submerged in the water. The radio system would work well during the flight up until that Monday evening. Now, the crew was well-trained in the equipment. During the months leading up to the flight, the couple took special classes on how to operate the various systems. Okay, so the balloon was well-equipped and well-stocked with provisions, food, water, and medical supplies for a long trip. The weight of the balloon was reported to be at 4,300 to 4,500 pounds. There were thoughts after the disaster that it may have been overloaded. Not sure. Now, problems began way before the free life even lifted off. The original pilot who was hired to fly the balloon was reportedly concerned with the safety of the balloon and its ability to make such a long flight. Now, it, to reach France, it would, it would be about 3,000 miles. A, a balloon had never flown that far before. So this pilot dropped out, and the couple had to hire another pilot in early August of 1970, just several weeks before the launch. The person he hired was 32-year-old Malcolm Brighton. Brighton was an aeronautical engineer from England. He was a licensed professional balloonist with vast experience in balloon flight. In fact, this attempt to cross the Atlantic would mark his 100th flight. Now, when Brighton confided to his balloonist friends about his plans to fly this balloon across the Atlantic, they were really concerned about it. In fact, they advised him against doing it, but he stuck with it. Now, even with all the setbacks, escalating costs, etc., the project moved forward. It had started as a lark for the couple, but eventually dominated their lives. They put their careers on the back burner, and as described by Pamela Brown shortly before takeoff, the balloon was like a monster in our backyard, which we fed until one day it became our child. That balloon was going up no matter what. They were focused on doing this, and it was going to get done. Now, as mentioned, Pamela Brown came from a prominent family, and her father said after, afterwards that he thought one of the reasons Pamela participated in this project is that she wanted an identity of her own. You know, her father was well-known with his political career, and her brother was well-known with his work and business, and Pamela wanted something that she could identify herself with, and that's what, if she had accomplished this balloon flight, it would have been quite an achievement. Now, after about four years of planning, escalating cost, delays, and pilots quitting, etc., day of liftoff finally came. The liftoff of the free life took place in the early afternoon of September 20th, 1970. The location for liftoff was a cow pasture on a farm in East Hampton, New York, near the tip of Long Island. Now, the day was a festive one, attended by more than 1,500 people who spent the day picnicking in the warm sunshine awaiting liftoff. Included in the crowd was Pamela Brown's father and her two older sisters. They planned on going over to Europe to meet her when she arrived in the balloon. Now, the flight, if successful, and that depended a lot on the weather, wind, and other variables, would take anywhere from six days to maybe even a couple weeks. Before liftoff, there was some concern about a tear in the uh, lower end of the outer balloon, but it was patched up and seemed to cause no concern. 
The designer later said this hole that had been patched up may have caused a problem when they encountered the cold temperatures the following night. Now, at liftoff, Pamela Brown filmed the event with her movie camera and, and tossed the camera to a friend before the balloon got up in the air before she would disappear from view. Now, National Balloon Association officials were also on hand on the day of the liftoff observing the launch. They were making sure the liftoff and equipment met international standards just in case the free life sets some records. So we have liftoff on that sunny September afternoon in 1970. During the, that first day, the Free Life went up the East Coast, hugging the coast, past Boston, Nova Scotia, Sable Island, etc. They kept an altitude of approximately 4,000 to 6,000 feet. Now, if the flight was successful, not only would they be the first to cross the Atlantic in a balloon, but they would also set some distance records. Up to then, the longest uh, distance that a balloon had flew was, I think, in 1914 by some Germans, and it flew somewhere around 1,800 miles. If they reached France, this would be at least 3,000 miles. So they would set all kinds of distance records, duration records, time aloft in in a balloon, And, of course, they would have the notable achievement of being the first to uh, cross the Atlantic. Things seemed to be going well during the first day of flight. But apparently that first night, that Sunday night, they had trouble with a mechanical device that was designed to heat hot air in the balloon at night. Uh, They had this device to heat the hot air because in cold, like I mentioned before, in cold night temperatures, the helium contracted, thus diminishing its lift power. Now, this device, this heating device for hot air was supposed to counteract the the helium contracting at night. Now, once the device proved inoperable, uh, the crew basically had to rely on the helium gas even at night. Now, this would have an impact the following evening, it seems. Things were, like I said, were running pretty smoothly that first uh, day of flight and even up through most of Monday Early Monday, uh, at 3 p.m. on Monday afternoon, the crew of the Free Life radioed a Portuguese Airways pilot who was traveling from Lisbon to New York City, and they said all was well, everything was good. The weather was good and morale was high. The pilot relayed this information to the communications center for the flight in New York. But in the next few hours, things went downhill. The balloon ran into a severe cold front and rainstorm, and they began to lose altitude. Now, I mentioned the hot air heating device that was now deemed inoperable. Around 7 p.m., the crew reported through the radio that they had hit a rainstorm. They were at 600 feet altitude and going down. And like I said, some of the last words were, we're ditching, request search and rescue. Now, they said that they would radio once again after they hit the water. They were never heard from again. Now, after that last radio transmission from the Free Life, a search and rescue operation was begun. They apparently went down anywhere from 350 to 400 miles southeast of Newfoundland. Three Coast Guard cutter ships and nine airplanes were sent out to search for the balloon and crew. Now, since the Free Life went down early in the evening, I'm not sure how much searching that could be done that first night. They would have to wait to the first light to really... 
uh, do a full cord press of searching. Now, apparently the balloon had a couple of radio beams that were supposed to send out signals, even if underwater, but they proved to be inoperative because no signals were ever received from any, any of the search crews. Now, as mentioned, no trace of the crew of the Free Life or the balloon itself has ever been found. Now, what exactly happened after it hit the ocean? Probably only the crew will ever know. One can imagine that the splashdown was very violent. Keeping in mind the stormy ocean, the splashdown was probably a deal-breaker. Uh, given the radio equipment on board, plus the fact that the gondola was supposed to float, and no communication was ever heard from the crew, it is fair to conclude that the splashdown was chaotic for all on board and prevented any, any kind of communication to the search and rescue. Now, if the splashdown were survivable, and that's a real possibility, and the gondola worked as designed to float on water, the crew had enough provisions on board to survive several days, perhaps weeks. The fact the search spanned about 100,000 square miles around the area where it was thought they went down and nothing was ever found leads credence to what the experts believe happened. They dropped into waves as high as 20 foot and were dragged under because the craft lacked the quick release mechanism to quickly separate the gondola from the balloon. So these experts were saying that the actual splashdown was, like I said, a deal breaker, that it was, the balloon was still probably attached to the gondola and with the high waves and the stormy sea probably dragged the, dragged them down. Now, the couple had a contract with Life magazine to cover the, the flight, and Life actually had some uh, cameras set up on the balloon looking down into the gondola into, and into the ocean. But, of course, that went, went down with the balloon. They wrote a story about a month later after it was apparent that the balloon and crew were lost. And the story of the article was entitled Flight of a Lovely Folly. And let me just read you the opening paragraph of it. This is Life Magazine, October 23, 1970. They were fools for attempting it, said the man who refused to pilot the balloon. Even the builder had warned, I wouldn't give you two cents for this trip. It was a folly, this attempt to cross the Atlantic in a balloon. It had never been done before. Yet it was a beautiful folly, as beautiful as the big lollipop-shaped balloon on that bright September day when it wafted into a cloudless sky. As it rose into the sun, it seemed as if the craft could float all the way to Europe on the spirit of its well-wishers alone. Yet behind this splendor lay several grim facts. An overloaded ship, an inexperienced crew, damaged equipment. When the preposterous enterprise came to an end about 1,000 miles later, in presumed death at sea for its three young crewmen, the mystery was not what had happened, but why? So there was a lot of 2020 hindsight after the fact that this flight was probably uh, doomed from the start, but yet it still took off. Now, you know, I can't do a podcast on crossing the Atlantic without mentioning Charles Lindbergh. Now, most of us know who Charles Lindbergh is. He's the first man in 1927 to fly an airplane solo across the Atlantic. You know, I've read all the biographies on Charles Lindbergh, and I think he's one of the true American heroes of the uh, 20th century. And I also watched the movie with Jimmy Stewart called The Spirit of St. Louis. 
And it's it's one of my favorite movies. It shows how much time Lindbergh used to prepare and plan for his flight, which is what the Free Life crew did. You know, he hugged the coast when he took off from New York on, on that May Day in 1927. And, of course, he flew over the ocean. And, of course, no one will ever forget uh, when he landed at the Paris airport the following night after 33 hours of flight and the huge crowds of hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen met him at the airport. It was very exciting. Like I said, this is one of my favorite movies, and it's got a lot of exciting scenes in it. But the one that really makes an impact on me more than any other and it's, it wasn't the actual flight or the landing, but there was a moment on that first day of flight where Lindbergh was flying over Newfoundland. And, you know, the, at that point, you know, he had to make a decision, am I going across the ocean? And the film shows him flying with the sun setting behind him, flying over a bay in Newfoundland, heading out to, to sea. This was what they call an irreversible commitment moment, that there's really no turning back. The Free Life crew probably experienced that same kind of moment when they got to Newfoundland and headed out to sea. You know, people, like I said, they were doing a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking after the fact about why the balloon shouldn't have attempted this. But, you know, they had that moment when they were heading out to sea and they had to make a decision. And it takes a special kind of commitment and a spirit and courage and a dedication to reach that moment, to make that decision and hit the go button. So, you know, people can, like I said, Monday morning quarterback all they want, but it takes a special kind of person to reach that moment in life and to do it. Now, after 17 previous recorded attempts to cross the Atlantic, including the Free Life's attempt, with a total of seven people dying in these attempts, there was finally a successful transatlantic balloon crossing on August 17, 1978. After a six-day flight, a balloon named the Double Eagle II with crew members Maxie Anderson, Ben Abruzza, and Larry Newman achieved history with their flight by landing in France crossing the Atlantic. What had been a dream of Pamela Brown's was finally accomplished with this flight. When the search for the free, free life was called off after several days in 1970, an editorial in Lexington's local paper seemed resigned to the fate of the free life's crew. It said the following, Pam Brown may be lost forever with her husband and their balloon pilot. They may be from now on one of the mysteries of the awesome sea, specifically the violent, grasping, and unpredictable ocean in which they went down. The editorial concluded with this comment. We can also admire Pam Brown as a hometown girl who pursued faithfully what her father called the impossible dream. Her spirit clearly reflected the spirit which has made the country great. The Actors Theater of Louisville in 1972 named an auditorium in her memory, the Pamela Brown Auditorium. Now, a book was written in 1994 entitled The Free Life, The Spirit of Courage, Folly, and Obsession. And the author was Anthony Smith, who was a friend of the pilot of The Free Life, Michael Brighton. This book was out of print for a while, but apparently it will be released September, just as the 50th anniversary is coming up. If you're interested in learning more about this flight, you might want to take a look at this book. 
Uh, again, the title is The Free Life, The Spirit of Courage, Folly, and Obsession by Anthony Smith, uh, written in 1994. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at L-E-X-P-U-B-L-I-B dot org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane.